Galaxy Lights, Coachella, Lightning Bolt Necklaces. 2023 was the year of Scandaval. On March 3rd, one cheating scandal launched a reality TV investigation that generated hundreds of conspiracy theories, thousands of podcast episodes, and millions of dollars in revenue. I'm Jody Walker, host of An American Scandaval. One retrospective story told in three salacious parts. Listen December 26th on the Ringer Reality Feed. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today is one of my favorite episodes of the year. It is a plain English tradition after weeks and months of unpacking news stories that take us into sad areas like anxiety and depression and war and death and loneliness and tech nonsense. This episode is an oasis of optimism in a news environment that loves its doom and gloom. It is our breakthroughs show, where we run down the most interesting and profound scientific and technological achievements in the last year. In my capacities as an Atlantic writer, I reported on this piece by emailing several of my favorite thinkers in tech and science to tell me what they considered the most important achievements in 2023. And first, before we go into the bulk of this episode, which really does focus on the incredible frontier of biotech, I want to talk about two nominees that are in the world of space and energy. So first, in space, some people I talked to said the coolest thing that happened last year, and maybe the most important discovery in terms of understanding the origins of human life, was the retrieval of material from a seven-year NASA mission. I talked about this a bit last week, but just a quick reminder. NASA launched a spacecraft to collect bits of a nearby asteroid called Bennu, B-E-N-N-U. This spacecraft visited the asteroid and returned to Earth this year, landing in Utah. When officials got a closer look at the specimen that it gathered, they saw water molecules inside clay materials. 
Now, this is important because one of the major theories for why the Earth has water, and therefore why it's been conducive to life, why you and I and everyone that you know exists, is that water came to this planet via an asteroid delivery system. Dante Loretta, the NASA mission's principal investigator, told the New York Times that the reason that the Earth is an is a habitable world, the reason we have oceans and lakes and rivers and rain, is because asteroids like this one landed on Earth four billion years ago and brought us water from space. What this made me think of is in the opening scene of one of my favorite movies, Prometheus, an alien comes down to Earth and drinks a potion which dissolves into a trillion pieces of DNA or primordial genetic goo, and that seeds the beginning of humanity. But this, the Bennu discovery, is among the most significant confirmations that, no, actually, we came not from aliens, but from asteroids and from the long, long chemical processes that follow their crashing into Earth and leaving behind small pools of water. The second nominee is in the field of energy. And speaking of space objects, the sun heats our solar system through an energy process called fusion. This is an energy process we've never been able to efficiently recreate on Earth. Inside the sun and other stars, heat and light are thrown off as atoms crash into each other and merge in a process called fusion. This is the opposite, by the way, of a nuclear reactor, what you and I know as a nuclear power plant, which uses fission, right, the splitting of atoms to release heat. Fusion, on the other hand, has always been a space dream, a total impossibility on this planet, but in the last 13 months, we've had two historic breakthroughs. And because this next part is a little bit complicated, I'm just going to read you what I wrote for The Atlantic. Quote, last December, at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, December 2022, 192 lasers blasted a diamond encasing a small amount of frozen hydrogen and created, for less than 100 trillionths of a second, a reaction that produced about three megajoules of energy. In that moment, scientists said, they achieved the first lab-made fusion reaction to ever create more energy than it took to produce. Seven months later, they did it again. In July 2023, researchers at the same ignition facility nearly doubled the net amount of energy ever created by a fusion reaction. Startups around the world are racing to keep up with science labs. New fusion companies like Commonwealth Fusion Systems and Helion are trying to scale this technology. Will fusion heat your home next year? Fat chance. Next decade? Cross your fingers. Within the lifetime of anyone listening to this podcast? Conceivably. So, space, asteroids, Earth, fusion, those are two of the coolest breakthroughs of the last year, but my top honors in breakthrough of the year were almost entirely in biotech, as I said. In the last 12 months, we've seen America's first FDA-approved CRISPR therapy, vaccines for malaria and RSV, an amazing experiment that I think of as what if face paint cured cancer, and of course, we return again to the GLP-1 revolution in diabetes and weight loss drugs. Today's guest is Eric Topol. He is the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute and a best-selling author on the future of medicine. He is our trusty guide today through the frontier of the biotech revolution. I'm Derek Thompson. 
This is Plain English. Dr. Eric Topol, welcome to the show. Uh, Great to be with you, Derek. So my goal for our next 40-ish minutes together is to give people an appropriately optimistic safari guide to the most important, the most interesting, the most wondrous breakthroughs happening right now in biotech. And I should begin by saying, I am so very far from being an expert in these subjects, but for better or worse, this is the part of the world, this is the genre of news that I've become the most interested in in the last two years, probably since maybe my conversations with you about the mRNA vaccine breakthroughs. So I gave you a list of today's topics uh, just so you had a rough roadmap of the journey. But before we set off, um, I want you to tell me, of all the breakthroughs, the science reports, the AI research, the published papers, the cover stories in science and cell and nature, I want to know what is Dr. Topol's nomination as the most important or interesting breakthrough in science in the last year? Well, there are many ones that, of course, uh, you can imagine are worthy to get kind of special recognition. But the one that I found the most intriguing of all was the work from Stanford, Tony Weiss, Carre, and his colleagues on internal clocks. It was the cover of Nature just a couple of weeks ago. And what it was the first time to be able to tell the age of 11 different organs of the body by different plasma proteins, such that this will really advance the science of aging and the ability to um, influence aging at an organ-specific level. And 20% of us have advanced accelerated aging of one organ. Uh, so this was a breakthrough. Uh, this had not really been shown before. And it took, a, you know, a really a monstrous effort of looking at thousands and thousands of proteins and figuring out if they were specific to an organ and then showing that these proteins were linked to outcomes like heart failure or Alzheimer's or all the other, you know, organ specific type adverse things. So it was a big contribution among many that I highly regard. I had no idea you were going to say this. I know nothing about internal clocks, but I'll tell you the first question that occurred to my mind when you said internal clocks and you kept talking was, it's interesting to think that when someone asks me, how old are you? I have one number I give them, 37. But I have been alive for 37 years. That is my external clock, so to speak. My liver, you know, I'm a, I drink maybe a little bit too much whiskey and uh, scotch and I should. Maybe my liver is 45. Maybe my heart is 23. Maybe my brain is 34. Maybe my pancreas is 55. Uh, Tell me how in some, hopefully not science fiction, but science fact future, someone listening to this podcast could imagine getting a birth certificate for all of their organs. What kind of a test would it take to learn, well, you're a 37-year-old man but your heart is this age, your pancreas is this age, and your liver is this age. How would some someone begin to get that information in the future? Yeah, well, it's available today for your total body. You know, this so-called epigenetic clock of Steve Horvath, where it looks at methylation markers, and it can tell you very accurately what's your biologic age. So it could say, well, Derek, you're 37, but your biological age is 42. 
but that's a total body uh and that's what the best that we have right now for a for a clock now to be able to drill down into you know 11 most important organs is a new thing and so this is going to very likely become available you know widely in a way to do checkups and people uh, much better than that we can today. We don't want to have to always resort to, you know, MRI scans or CT scans or that sort of thing. And also, you, you know, doing these liquid biopsies that are starting to get some traction in cancer. Uh, you know, it isn't clear that they're going to be useful to prevent not only cancer, but other conditions as well. So that's why this was a finding that really stands out. It's not yet ready for daily, you know, to give you a readout, like you said, is that whiskey hurting you, hurting your liver to some degree, but it will. This is, this is where we're headed. It's really cool. Do we know, one more follow-up question on this before we get into the meat of today's episode. Do we know if these full body biological clock tests are truly predictive? By which I mean, if there's a 60-year-old who's told that they are the biological age, that their body is the biological age of a 30-year-old, and there's a 30-year-old who's told they have a biological age of 60, can we really expect that 60-year-old to live like 30 years longer than the 30-year-old? I don't know that my full math is, is right there, but is, is it predictive on that kind of lifespan level? Yeah, actually, it turns out they're pretty darn accurate. Uh, you know, looked at in just you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. The tricky part is, uh, it. you know, I kind of look at it, if you want to give it a very simplistic reductionist description, it's like the rusting of your body. You know, some people don't rust very much and others do, but it's very generalized and rudimentary. It doesn't tell you where the problems lie. But that the, the reason why this is a big deal also is because if we're ever going to start to find ways to promote aging, uh, you know, the reduction of aging, uh, this, you know, is decelerating our aging process. It's important to have these kind of metrics because it's unlikely that, you know, any particular intervention is going to have a quick whole body effect, but it might on a, on a particular organ. So that's why this is especially promising. It's a path towards a regulatory, towards approval someday of agents that uh, promote healthy aging. So when I wrote my piece for The Atlantic about the breakthroughs of the year in 2023, my award for the most significant breakthrough in science and tech went to the breakthrough in CRISPR. So in December, the FDA approved the world's first medicine based on CRISPR technology. This has been made by uh, pharmaceutical companies based in Boston and Switzerland. It is a treatment for sickle cell disease, which is a chronic blood disorder that affects about 100,000 people in the US, millions of people around the world, most of them black. Before we dig into a little bit about the frontier of CRISPR, can you explain for a lay audience what is CRISPR and how does it work? Right. Well, this is uh, the biggest life science breakthrough of our time. This is the ability to edit the genome. The problem is that CRISPR, which was basically started, you know, 10 years ago, um, was a blunt tool. You know, basically it, it cut it, it, uh, across both strands of, a, of DNA. Uh, and so it was very highly disruptive, which is what was approved 
for sickle cell. Um, and since then, we have much more precise ways to edit, namely uh, base editing and prime editing. So while I really like the CRISPR sickle cell, obviously it was great to see a first you know, FDA approval um, and approvals in other countries like the UK. The problem with it is it isn't direct. It's working on um, uh, you know, alpha fetal hemoglobin um, and it's, so it's not correcting the sickle cell, you know. Right, it, it's, right. So the sickle cell it, is is caused by a genetic mutation that affects the production of hemoglobin, which is the protein that carries oxygen in red blood cells. And tell me if I'm wrong. Th this treatment doesn't correct the genetic mutation. It essentially works on another gene that has stopped the production of fetal hemoglobin, which does not sickle, doesn't produce these sickle-shaped cells which clog and create extreme pain and anemia, it turns that gene from red to green, and suddenly the body starts producing fetal hemoglobin, which does not sickle, and so these people still have the genetic mutation, uncorrected, that causes sickle cell disease or sickle cell anemia, but a separate gene has been edited in order to produce this fetal hemoglobin that essentially overrides their disease by filling their body with fetal hemoglobin, which most adults do not produce. Is that the general picture here? Oh, you did it really well. That is an excellent explanation, but it also cuts to the chase here, which is we didn't fix the genetic defect. It was a, it was a bypass or in a workaround path, knowing that we had this only rudimentary way to do genome editing the original genome editing. It's only in recent years that we have these really incredible tools that you could fix the sickle cell gene, or basically, you know, get close to any gene now can be fixed without having to do disruption of uh, double-stranded DNA. So that's what's exciting is what's in store. In fact, you know, we'll go back to sickle cell with actually correcting sickle cell. But look, this is great because Theoretically, it can help a lot of the people with sickle cell disease. The problem, as you know, Derek, is that it's incredibly complex. I mean, my goodness. You know, that's why I like the precise ways to do genome editing where you just get one shot and you're done and you're cured and it's specific to the gene. This one is, is hardly that. This is, you know, basically having involving, you know, bone marrow wipeout, a month in the hospital, incredible, you know, expense. Uh, you know, a lot of people um, will never be able to access this very complex form of treatment of. So, so on the one hand, it's a momentous advance that we have approval, but it's just the beginning of how exciting um, the uh, genome editing field is going to get in the years ahead. I'm glad that you mentioned some of the problems because in this next question, I'm going to both, well, first pour cold water on this discovery and then hopefully get us hyped up again. So there are really fair concerns that I found in my reporting on price and access. As you alluded to, these treatments are incredibly complicated. They involve you know, bone marrow, uh, blood transfusions. They require weeks or months long stays in the hospital. They also cost millions, not one, several millions of dollars, at least in the sticker price. Now, 70 to 80% of sickle cell anemia patients in the world live in Sub-Saharan Africa. The average GDP per capita in Sub-Saharan Africa is $2,000 a year, which means when you multiply it out very simply, you're talking about a treatment that would require a thousand people's annual salary to afford one treatment. In the US, that'd be the equivalent of us talking about 
a $70 million treatment. So an incredibly expensive treatment, at least in terms of the sticker price, even as it is an amazing scientific breakthrough. So that's that's the cold water. The, the complications of and the price of this treatment mean that it's not maybe going to immediately have this enormous effect on the number of people suffering from sickle cell disease in the world. Okay, get us hyped up again. You, on your Substack, uh, talked to uh, David Liu, who's a molecular biologist and a chemist at the Broad Institute, uh, who is working on this next generation of CRISPR that you've alluded to, base editing and prime editors. If I asked you to like peel back the curtain just a bit to preview you know, the most exciting CRISPR research in either early clinical trials or preclinical research, like what is just over the horizon that people should be so excited about? Well, David really is uh, incredibly creative and has come up with the inventor of these two much more refined, advanced forms of editing. And so one of the ways it's being done today is in people with very high cholesterol, familial hypercholesterolemia, uh, where 10 people were recently reported that have this FH condition where their, their bad cholesterol LDL is, you know, several hundred, despite the fact that they're on medications for that. And they get one shot of a base editor, goes to the liver, fixes a specific PCSK9 that's responsible. And then their LDL, you know, is down at good levels and, you know, should be a lifelong treatment. So it's very different than the sickle cell that you just reviewed to one shot intravenous fixes the gene specifically and could have a lifelong cure of a very serious condition. But um, to get you even further, if this works, it's safe. Then we talk about instead of everybody having to take cholesterol medicines for all their life, what about you just go get a shot, you know, when you're young and you don't have to, to worry about forever, you know? So the expense is absurd today. It's intolerable, you know, millions of dollars. But as the price comes down and the volume of people potentially um, to get gene, uh, genome editing increases, it's possible someday, you know, we're not talking about in the near term, but, you know, a decade plus from now, that these could get to very reasonable costs uh, in, in at scale. And that's just an example. I mean, we're talking about, you name the con genetic condition, and then the extent, extension of that kinetic condition. So there are a lot of people who have don't have familial hypercholesteremia, but they have still what's known as polygenic high cholesterol. They could benefit from such an approach. And that's kind of, you know, way most chronic conditions uh, of people are. So there's almost unlimited potential if, we, if the price can come down and if it's a one-off and if it's a cure, if it doesn't have these so-called off-target effects or uh, on-target issues, if, if we don't have problems that are unforeseen in the longer haul, if we can surmount these obstacles. Genome editing is just an amazing uh, therapeutic uh, in the years ahead. I have one more follow-up question on CRISPR before we move on to the next arena of breakthrough. How... I'm curious to know what you see as the rate limiting step for these, for uh, base editing and prime editing to be delivered and reach the kind of phase three clinical trials that the sickle cell disease CRISPR therapy reached. Is it, we haven't yet perfected the therapy itself, the technique 
of editing at the atomic level, the A's into G's and putting in the missing CCTs for cystic cystic fibrosis? Or is it that we don't yet know where many of the uh, single gene mutations are? And so we're still having a treasure hunt to figure out what those gene mutations are, and maybe even where the polygenic mutations live that are responsible for more complex diseases like Alzheimer's or dementia. So is it is it the technique that we're working on? Is it the is it that we're still looking for the right genes to target, or is it something entirely different? What do you see as the most the most significant rate limiting step here? Well, it's really not uh, any problem as far as knowing the genes because we've got that down in 7,000 conditions. Uh, And so the list is long that can be uh, uh, genome edited for treatment. The problem is the delivery. So if it's a liver, okay. If it's in the blood, like sickle cell, okay. But, um, you know, when you start getting to other organs, um, then we got a problem. The eye, you could do, you know, local delivery. Uh, but then, you know, to the heart, the brain, you know, other parts of the body, it's it's a problem. So delivery has to improve. That's a rate limiting step right now. There are a lot of ideas of how that's going to, uh, you know, go forward. Uh, um, but that's the one that puts the list at a relatively limited number of conditions. You know, just to round this out, I mean, to talk about um, the... the um, extended use of germ of of, of, uh, genome editing take 63 genes in a person um, to block the ability to have a pig transplant organ 63 genes so that you don't have to take immunosuppressant drugs you could just genome edit all of them at once you know, it's like, whoa. So, you know, we're talking about, as you well know, uh, there, there's a tremendous shortage of organs for heart and lung and liver and the ability to use um, animals with CRISPR uh, by, you know, taking their organs and putting them through genome editing. That just gives you that. And of course, all the cancers that we could, you know, leukemias and others that we can do genome editing outside the body. So it isn't just things in the body. In fact, the outside the body is not a delivery issue. So that gives you another edge. And so uh, people should think of germ, uh, uh, germline, we don't want to go there, genome editing uh, as just a tool that is just, you know, diverse. And uh, we're just we're just getting out of the starting block here. That's so interesting. You, and just thinking about all the different diseases that you're talking about, right? Like you, you've you've alluded to congenital blindness, to heart disease, to uh, uh, maybe diabetes or cancer, to high cholesterol, maybe coronary artery disease, to uh, the rejection of a pig organ transplant. I mean, we're just talking about so many different diseases. And that really, I think, establishes CRISPR as really this platform technology where it's not about any one disease. It's about the ability to make all sorts of things possible that are currently impossible, which is, you know, in in the most optimistic vision, what technology is all about. One last thing I just want to point out is, you know, Alzheimer's, which we don't still have anything really that helps significantly in Alzheimer's. David and I spoke about the idea of of changing our ApoE4 gene to ApoE2 and the the twofer you get to to take out your risk of Alzheimer's and get a longer life. Uh, 
So that's that's out there. Uh, Jennifer Dowden has also commented on that. Uh, so we're talking about getting to you know conditions that uh, were never even conceivable through better delivery and improvements that are to come in in uh, gene editing. Let's move on to vaccines. Most of our conversations, I would say, have been about vaccines. And this has been another good spell on the vaccine front. So 15 months ago, the first malaria vaccine uh, developed by University of Oxford scientist was endorsed by the World Health Organization. It has already been administered to millions of children, which is incredible because malaria is one of the leading causes of death for children worldwide. But demand is still outstripping supply, and that's why it's so fantastic that a second malaria vaccine called R21 was recommended this year, 2023, by the WHO. It seems to be cheaper, seems to be easier to manufacture. And then in addition to a second malaria vaccine, uh, the other vaccine that really caught my eye because it was administered to my four-month-old daughter is the FDA approved several vaccines against RSV, um, which is uh, so common that an estimated 97% of children catch it before they turn two, in addition uh, to it being uh, a serious risk for older Americans as well. I want you to, so you got malaria, we got RSV, you, you might have others top of mind. I'd like you to actually begin by scoping out. Do you have a big picture explanation for why we seem to be in a golden age for vaccine research? Well, it isn't just uh, mRNA, uh, the package with nanoparticles, that's one part. But I mean, some of the, like the RSV vaccines, which are you know pretty striking, you know, a single shot and not uh, necessarily relying on mRNA, the malaria vaccine, not mRNA vaccine. So what we're seeing is um, vaccinology has had decades to warm up. And at the same time, these pathogens have had many decades without a vaccine. I mean, we're talking about malaria and RSV, and there's so many other pathogens where we had nothing for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, and we still have nothing for many important diseases that are killers like tuberculosis and, and, and so many others. But what is happening is, you know, you're watching all these get uh, triumphs, you know, it could be Zika, it could be Ebola, um, you know, you name the condition of uh, pathogen, vaccines are in the works. And we're seeing triple vaccines. So in the next couple of years, there'll be an RSV COVID flu vaccine and, you know, things like that. So the, the this is a typical thing in science that most people don't realize is when you, the, the mRNA nanoparticle uh, breakthrough which was incubating for three plus decades, is emblematic of all what's been going on in vaccinology. Um, you know, some of this is that we've been able to sequence the virus, understand the structural biology of the proteins involved. That's what helped us a lot with RSV. But some of it is just that, you know, science takes a long time to get these remarkable triumphs and we're seeing them and you know at some point we're not going to have pathogens that we can't make really good vaccines to guard against and that's exciting it's extraordinary there's nothing more potent than vaccines in our armamentarium to prevent uh, diseases and by the way we're talking about cancer vaccines preventive vaccines someday vaccines perhaps to prevent you know alzheimer's uh, coronary disease, you know, the, the work. So it isn't just against infectious diseases uh, that we're talking about. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. 
Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I, as a general sort of as someone who's interested in science and tech more broadly and some of the themes in the history of progress, I've always been interested in this concept of twin ideas or sometimes called simultaneous invention. I mean, the theory of evolution was essentially discovered in by uh, uh, Darwin and other European scientists in the same year. Um, you have, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Charles Wheatstone and Samuel Morse invented the telegraph in the same year, 1837. Elijah Gray and Alexander Graham Bell filed patents for the telephone on the exact same day in 1876. We, I think we kind of saw this in artificial intelligence. Like it last, it was two years ago, uh, toward the end of the year in the fall of 2021, 2022, excuse me, where you didn't just have ChatGPT come out, you had ChatGPT and Dali and Midjourney. All of these tools seem to have this sudden simultaneous Cambrian explosion. And this might be taking the metaphor a little bit too far, but it seems like we are having this reunion party for vaccine success stories that's happening around the same time. And I, I'm just wondering whether um, maybe it's luck, right? I mean, the theory of simultaneous invention and the theory of twin ideas just sort of says, there are ideas that are in the ether that lots of people just sort of pick up around the same time based on technology just generally being at the same place in you know Boston and New York and LA and London. And so people just invent the telephone on the same day. That's just how it happens. Is Do you have a like more, more uh, what is it, sophisticated theory for why 
the last few years have been this sort of, you know, pull back the curtain, aha, everything is ready moment for vaccines being approved? Because as you said, of course, the research goes back decades, but the date of approval is a date of approval. Um, and we seem to be getting a cluster of them. Uh, any possible reason why we seem to be sort of accelerating in terms of our success in vaccinology recently? Well, I, I love the analogies you've made, uh, parallels to, you know, the AI world with transform models and, you know, the various old inventions that, um, you know, with simultaneous, um, you know, this is a really tough question. I, I wonder about it myself. What, what really uh, is the uh, explanation? I mean, I think there's parallel efforts that go on. I mean, we've seen this enough for, for example, RSV vaccines. They were worked on, you know, at NIH, at GSK, at Pfizer, you know, and then the time it takes to get it done is typically you can't change it that much. So sometimes it's just the fact that you you know you there's a there's a target, there's a goal and you know it's kind of a the usual time that's required. Um I think that also accounts for what's happened in the GPT world where you know there was a transformer a preprint in 2017 and it took, you know, that many years and all of a sudden like you said there was a party of all these different large language models or, you know, Billy basically multimodal models coming out at once because they got, they went to that incubation phase. So I think that's what it really is because when, when you talk about vaccines, you're talking about um, understanding the pathogen, sequencing the pathogen, which has only become, you know, uh, much more uh, common, uh, not just sequencing the pathogen, but, you know, lots of people who have that pathogen so that uh, along with the structural biology the the um the the idea of delivery which sometimes is through an mrna but of course it's it's a diverse way to get it into cells so these all things were happening you know together and a similar timeline and i think that's what's enabled so many new ways i mean the rsv was being pursued before covid and it enabled covid but it didn't hit until after COVID. Um, but, you know, if it hadn't been for the work that was being done with RSV to understand the so-called pre-fusion protein, it, it accelerated our ability to interfere and get high neutralizing antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. Let's talk about AI. Uh, in the last year, I've read stories about using artificial intelligence to predict protein shapes, to read radiology reports, to interpret radiology reports, to assist in diagnoses for complex diseases. This is a pretty bewildering landscape for me, like the intersection of AI and medicine. But fortunately, you literally wrote the book on AI and medicine. What stands out to you as the most significant recent work at that intersection of AI and healthcare? Well, um, I think the biggest contribution thus far is the so-called Alpha 2, which is, as you know, the ability to predict from a, a linear sequence of amino acids, you know, 1D uh, dimension, 3D at the atomic level, structure of basically the entire world's proteome, every protein, 200 million proteins in the world. Um, with variable levels of confidence, but nonetheless, here it is. And just to to put that in context, you know, 
you know, where I work at Scripps Research, I had colleagues that would take three years to crystallize a, a protein, and now they can do it in, you know, three minutes. So, I mean, this is just extraordinary, and it's enabled by, you know, the work of DeepMind, a transformer model, which has now been the birth of many other transformer models in life science. And the same thing that you just reviewed uh, is happening in the medical space as well, which basically is we're not now, you know, large language models as a term is about to become obsolete. It's not just language, it's images, it's speech. And, um, you know, that is getting us to a point where making medical diagnoses much more accurately is going to be in the near future. I mean, we're starting to see it now, good validation of that. But the biggest thing so far to show that you could change the world of life science or biomedicine clearly is this AlphaFold 2 and its derivatives. There's many different transformer models now. You can even invent proteins that were never known to nature don't exist in nature. Uh, and, you know, the biggest thing this week was the um, discovery of a whole new uh, structural class of antibiotics. The last one took 38 years. And uh, James Collins and his colleagues at Weiss Institute and Harvard did this, and it's a stunner. So that's it's basically, and that's not even transformer models. That was just a, the old deep learning, old, I say, because it's, you know, less than a decade now. But look what's going to happen here. It's just mind-blowing. Connect this to how the technology could actually affect people's lives. So let's say I'm a scientist. I read a sequence of amino acids. I build an accurate, perfectly accurate, to the nanoatom, accurate 3D model of the protein. What do I do with that? Where do I, how, how, how do I use a perfect 3D model of a protein to develop a drug or help a class of patients? Yeah, well, that's the template to build on an antibody to that protein. You know exactly where to bind or to build a small molecule like a pill that you could take to know exactly where the business ends of that molecule are and the pockets and how you get in and these so-called cryptic, which is you know, the hidden parts of the, of the protein. Um, so it basically unlocks, you know, it's a treasure chest for making drugs. And that's why you're seeing the acceleration of uh, drug uh, efforts now, like we've never seen before. So, you know, whereas it might've taken 10 or 20 years to come up with a new molecule that has big Im impact, we're going to see that down to very short periods of time. Uh, and we're going to see a lot of AI helping to invent the drugs. And the only question I've raised is, shouldn't the AI get some credit? Because the humans are, you know, kind of pushing the buttons, and but the AI is doing a lot here that we don't fully understand. So sort of like if someone were developing an antibody to some kind of malady, right, some kind of disease, and historically, we've been sort of reaching into our bag and trying to fit random keys into a lock, and we don't know the shape of the lock. And so it's just like, trying key number one, doesn't work. Trying key number two, doesn't work. But if we could somehow x-ray the lock, and we knew exactly where all of its little points up and points down, and how thick this part is, and how fat that part is, we could say, oh, this is exactly the kind of key that we need in order to open this closed door, and then we just go off and 3D print that key or just have some key maker make that key, it slips in perfectly, opens up. That's obviously incredibly simplified. I'm sure this process no, takes actually, many I, years, I, but like that's, know, I, it goes from I blind to metaphor. visible. 
Yeah. I love the metaphor, Derek. That's perfectly right. That, that you know, structural biology, a lot of people don't get, but an x-ray of the lock and the key, yeah, there it is. Very good. Cool. All right. Well, that sounds great. I mean, what, where, where are we close to, like, are there, the same way that the, the first target up for CRISPR turned out to be sickle cell disease, do you know if there are certain diseases or certain classes of diseases where this kind of protein intelligence is making it easier for us to pick that lock? Like, is there, is there some disease that you've read reports where it's like, oh, we're making promising progress on this kind of thing thanks to these 3D models of protein that we're able to develop? Well, I mean, there again, the list is long. And it's, you know, you you only will say that it clicked when you actually have a drug that doesn't have toxicity and really does the job. I mean, since we started to see AI apply to new drugs, I mean, one of the things that we've never had a good drug for is to prevent scarring of organs in the body, um, whether that's the liver or the heart or you name it, lungs. And, you know, that's one of the first drugs that came out of AI was a drug, you know, that was developed through AI. But one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, Derek, is that there was a drug that was found by AI mining during the pandemic, baricitinib, which is life-saving uh, and approved by the FDA fully for you know saving lives with severe COVID. And if it wasn't for AI, we wouldn't have known that this drug which is used for rheumatoid arthritis and alopecia areata. So that's another thing is that you're using AI to look at these um, uh, atomic structures and then going through all the known drugs, the 20,000 drugs and how they work and say, oh, well, here's a good one. So repurposing drugs also will be accelerated. Two more categories I want to ask you about. The first is... Um, so in, in last year's Breakthroughs essay, one of the weirdest examples of a science breakthrough that I found that was recommended to me was a liquid solution that revived the organs of dead pigs. And this year's category of, wait, what, uh, is the news that some scientists figured out a way to engineer a common skin bacteria. They engineered it to carry bits of tumor material, tumor information. And when they rubbed a concoction of this engineered skin bacteria on the head of mice in a lab, the animals produced T cells inside the body that sought out that tumor, the, the um, attending tumor, and attacked it. So I, as I joked in the article that I published for The Atlantic, the uh, the jokey way to summarize this is face paint that cures cancer, like or or skin cream that cures cancer that, that fights cancer, right? Like you you rub this topical chemotherapy or topical you know CAR T cell on your forehead and it somehow goes to fight the distal cancer. Um, first, please do your best to correct any way in which I've utterly bastardized the summary um, of this particular piece of research. And second, maybe make us a little bit smarter about what exactly was done here and, and why it might be so important. Because at least one scientist I really, really respect um, uh, in, the, in the Bay Area said that this was uh, the most interesting breakthrough that he saw in the last 12 months. Yeah, well, you know, when you ask me about um, the top breakthroughs, you know, overall, you know, I'd say that our ability to either um, enhance the immune response or take it away, suppress it, uh, 
is going to new levels that we've never seen before. And this is just one example of that. So while it's in mice and it's with mice that have melanoma tumors, um, the ability to rev up our immune system, uh, of course, we know that. I mean, we need to, in fact, that's where, again, gene therapy uh, gene editing, genome editing is being used, but the, the we know that we can squash a lot of tumors by revving up our immune system, uh, particularly our T cells, our cytotoxic killer T cells. Um, so this made a lot of sense, you know, that is, it's just another way through the skin, through a skin uh, tumor, melanoma, that you should be able to do that. Now we have to see whether it's going to hold up in, in humans, but it's encouraging. The point here is that it's just one of so many different ways we're going to be attacking cancer because probably what we're starting to realize now you know, overall is that the basic reason why cancer spreads, which is a killer, it isn't the cancer, it's the spread of metastasis, is because our immune system can't you know, squash it. And especially as we get older, our immune system, uh, as you know, we have senescence, immunosenescence. So this is a way to rev up our immune system. And of course, it could be widely applicable. And using the skin, using bacteria as a carrier, fine. You know, whatever way you got to get it in, um, you know, get it into the body to make the, per the person, ideally, to uh, recognize that tumor specifically so it doesn't you know, kill other cells, just gets the cancer. And so, you know, this is this is where the whole field is headed. Yeah, it, it, I recently read um, uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee's book on cells. I think it's called The Song of the Cell. And he has this really poetic chapter on T-cells where he says, T-cells are the body's way to distinguish self from non-self. Because T-cells attack the disease within us, but there's research that suggests that if you take my T cells outside of my body and they put them into my friend's body, they don't do the job of my friend's body. They can only tell the difference between me and the disease inside of me. So they know the difference between self and non-self. And so the sort of metaphorical way that I've come to understand the power of T cells is we need to find ways. You mentioned that what is cancer? Cancer is a, is a failure in a way to recognize non-self, right? It's the immune system's inability to recognize the non-self that is metastasizing, growing inside of the self. And we have, we're finding these little ways to make the T-cell smarter at recognizing non-self. Is, is that essentially it? That with CAR-T therapy and maybe with you know this, this um, bacterial engineering in, in mice that we're talking about now, we're finding little ways to raise the IQ of our T-cells. Absolutely. I mean, we got two things going on here. One is the cancer hijacks the cells. It figures out how, a ways to evade our immune system. And then the other is that our impaired ability as, as a person in general to get our immune system to take, to recognize um, the cancers, you know, the self. So, yeah, I mean, this is a really nice, you're very good at analogies, Derek. Uh, and and I think uh, that's a real real talent. So I got to give you a lot of credit for that. Well, unfortunately, um, there's something else that's very good at analogies, and it's ChatGPT. So um, uh, before it before it puts you out of work in cardiology, it's going to put me out of work in in analogy making. Um, let's uh, let's close on GLP ones. We did several episodes in GLP ones uh, last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago. I think these things are absolutely fascinating. I think they're fascinating in terms of what they do for people with diabetes. Fascinating for their effects on weight loss, not just the 
uh, GLP-1s, but also the dual agonists, the triple agonists that are coming out. We're attacking more and more, or it's mimicking, I should say, not attacking, mimicking more and more hormones and having a larger and larger effect on weight loss. But I know that you, in addition to all these hats you wear as a cardiologist, you're also really interested in the effects we're seeing in terms of it reducing cardiac events like heart failure, stroke. Maybe just talk a little bit about these unexpected, surprisingly, maybe even miraculous side effects that we're seeing with the this GLP-1 plus class of medications. What are you seeing here? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call them side effects. I, what I'd call them is that um, the problem with the uh, obesity or underlying diabetes, uh, metabolic syndrome, these conditions are pro-inflammatory throughout the body. And we haven't really had good uh, agents to block inflammation. Uh, and even before you lose the weight, for example. So what these GLP-1 drugs, and you know, as we got the dual receptor and now triple receptor, we're increasing the potency, increasing the anti-inflammatory effect, it looks like as well. And that's what's putting up a, um, you know, the reduce ability to reduce what's called um, preserved ejection heart failure, which is half of heart failure, which largely is from obesity. Um, the ability to prevent heart attacks, strokes, uh, and uh, heart cardiovascular deaths has been seen in trials that were completed uh, in this year. But that's just the beginning. This is headed... Um, the, the problem, of course, these drugs uh, right now, they're injectable, they're very expensive, but pill forms are coming. Uh, expense will inevitably get down. Uh, it has to go much, much lower, of course, but the availability or access to the to meds. But we're going to see very likely this becoming not just the breakthrough for obesity, as was first heralded, but an across-the-board benefit uh, for Many, many, whether it's liver disease, kidney diseases, heart, uh, you know, possibly Alzheimer's is a very big trial that's going on right now that'll read out uh, in 2025. We're, we're talking about, you know, most chronic diseases of man that this could be a potential remedy for if it becomes, you know, very inexpensive uh, and doesn't have to require, you know, frequent injections. So that is exciting. Uh, there's so many things that are going on right now that are, you know, extraordinary, but this is one that we're just seeing the beginning of it right now. Uh, you know, we basically have seen most of the work has been with semaglutide, which is, you know, a relatively weak hitter. And there's many more potent ones coming along. And, um, you know, we don't know about the long-term side effects of these drugs over many years. We don't know how to wean people off these drugs so they don't have to take it for life. Uh, there are many unanswered issues, but the effects at the biologic level are exciting. And we haven't really had a drug that does this. The only other drug that decreases inflammation safely that we rely upon uh, is in the heart world is statins. It's the only other one that's big. But this has the potential for being much bigger because of its pronounced effects across, uh, you know, not just obesity, but all the other things I've mentioned. It's interesting to me because and maybe this is wrong and it's just me being a Johnny come lately to the biotech space, but it's my sense that typically there's a discovery process in science followed by FDA approval. 
And with GLP-1s, it's like we had FDA approval followed by a discovery process. Like we're like, oh my God, this thing that we already knew to be effective at treating type 2 diabetes and also uh, type 1 diabetes, it turns out it's incredible for weight loss. Oh my God, it turns out it's doing this thing for you know reducing people's appetite for candy. Oh, it's, it's also good for cardiovascular health. Oh, it also might reduce rates of Alzheimer's, it's like it 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 almost it almost sounds made up, right? I, I said in one of my earlier episodes, like you know, Derek, you can't just name a bunch of good things and list them one after another and say GLP one does that as well. But like we are like in that honeymoon phase with this drug, where it does seem like the number of um, positive—I won't call it side effects—I'll call it consequences of taking the drug—is yeah, um, really yeah, benefits is right. really sensational. No, I mean, you know, you could get rid of cravings and gambling and alcohol abuse, and I mean, the list is just. It's absurd how long it is. But, you know, one thing I'd, I'd say here is how dumb we were, okay? Because um, the first of these drugs got approved in 2004, okay? And how, the reason we're so dumb is that we didn't jump on this 20 years ago. If we'd had GPT-4 20 years ago, and we'd say, hmm, what do you think we could do with this drug, right? And say, you know, maybe not just think about it for glucose control. Maybe you could do a lot more. And you know what GPT-4 would say? Yeah, go for it. Uh, make a long half-life and try obesity because it has a lot of promise. And by the way, once you hit the hypothalamus and the limbic system, you know, there's a lot you can do here. But it took 20 years, Derek, to figure that out. Okay, so... There's an intersection between GPT and GLP here, which is really interesting. Um, and I actually think this could be likely uh, the biggest drug class in medical history, but it will start, oh, it'll be a segue to others as well. I want to close even, well, I'll make it this penult the penultimate question because it, it's a, a little bit more of a downer. There are some safety questions about the GLP-1 class of drugs. I know you talked to Peter Atia who is concerned about, or I should say looking at uh, two side effects that he's a little bit worried of. Number one is uh, it seems to raise people's heart rate while they're sleeping. Um, you're the cardiac expert, so I'll have you comment on that. And then second, there's uh, a muscle loss component that we put people in DEXA, DEXA scanners and they tend to lose roughly equal amounts of uh, fat and muscle. I talked to Robert Lustig on this show again two weeks ago I, you know, and when he brought this up, my response was, that's not good, but it's my hope that we can find some way to raise muscle mass, whether it's medically or just by the endocrinologist uh, or um, internist uh, physician telling their patient on the GLP-1s, hey, you, you need to strongly consider um, having a, a heavy lifting regimen um, because the muscle loss, especially as you get older, can be, can be difficult and, and not entirely healthy. How do you feel about some of these side effects that we're seeing? There's, you know, there's nausea, which is more common, but then uh, there's also these fears about you know, uh, uh, elevated heart rate at sleep and muscle loss. Yeah, I looked into the elevated heart rate. It is common, but it's usually just a few beats per minute. The problem is some people you know, get up to even 20 beats per minute uh, of their resting heart rate. Uh, heightened by taking these drugs. So that's something to keep an eye on. We don't want drugs that are going to increase heart rate 10 to 20. It isn't common at all to see that, but when it does occur, uh, that should be at least a yellow flag. Now, um, and we don't know why uh, either that happens. Um, 
and uh, we don't fully understand the mechanism of these drugs, which also needs work. That gets us to your question, which I think is is fundamental. It's about loss of muscle mass. There's a recent study with MRI. Of course, it's from the company, you know, so <laughs> but it's better than a DEXA scan that basically saying, ah, there's really not that much muscle mass loss. And then, of course, as you are getting at, there are ways to inc- to kind of uh, counter the potential muscle loss with more protein intake or weightlifting and, you know, take doing, you know, particular exercises to counter that. Cause we don't want this so-called sarcopenic obesity with people who are falling and frail because they've lost, you know, skeletal mu- muscle and even bone density. So this is an unknown yet there, there's mixed data. It's, it's, bit, it's a bit concerning for sure. There's also the kind of known unknowns that we could see that we you know, haven't given at high doses for years. What's going to happen to people since, you know, it's really it's 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 horrible that these companies are not doing anything to try to get the drugs off of people. They're just committing them. Oh, this is like your insulin and you're a diabetic. Take it for life. No. Why? So we should be seeing work like that because there well could be some side effects that are concerning we haven't seen yet. Because, you know, it's it's kind of as I think you got to, it's too good to be true. And there's, there's going to be, besides nausea and GI side effects, and besides the ones that we just discussed, who knows what else we might see over time. So we need more work on the, on the muscle mass prevention, loss of that. And we also uh, should be open-minded about seeing things we haven't yet, that haven't yet surfaced. The longest follow-up of people at high dose of a GLP-1 is 40 months. That's not very long uh, in the big picture. I want to close by braiding my first question and my last question. And that is, if we understand with this new class of drugs that medication that mimics you know, glucagon-like peptide one and GIP and glucagon, I mean, that's those are the three hormones that are hit by retitrutide, which is the, uh, the latest class of the GLP-1 plus drugs. If we recognize that, that mimicking those kind of hormones is what this is all about. And we don't want people to have to stab themselves in the leg once a week for the rest of their lives. Is there a CRISPR solution here? <laughs> I'm like, I mean, is there some way that we could figure out a genetic, monogenetic or polygenic place where if we do some kind of base or prime editing, we could change the genome to have a different kind of production of GLP, GIP, glucagon. Is there, have you ever thought about there being some way that like, obviously like GLP has like shown us the way forward in terms of, you know, the weight comes down, there's all sorts of of, of benefits. Um, but maybe we could do this not at the end of um, a needle, but rather through CRISPR. Is, is, there, is there any way that's plausible or am I way off base there? No, you're not off base. I think you're off time sync. It might take you know quite a long time to get to that. Um, you know, I think it intersects more with what I started with about the internal clocks. That if you can work on these three peptides, the chance of you changing organ aging is is enhanced. But to to try to simulate the triple receptor agonist, you know, with a with a uh, a base or prime editing, uh, it, it's potentially doable. The question is, you know, what tissue are you going after? Uh, and uh, 
you know, a lot of these effects, particularly the inflammation, has appeared to be mediated through the brain. That's not one of the delivery places right now that we can get to. So if you really want to, you know, start to change the the triple peptide story, um, we got to work on delivery uh, much better. What I think you're more likely to see, uh, Derek, is that uh, peptides that are even smaller that are in pills uh, are going to cross the blood-brain barrier easier so that we could take advantage of that property of lowering the temp- the inflammation of throughout the body through the brain uh, with small molecule uh, peptide uh, agonists. So that's kind of where I see things are going. But who knows, you know, 20 years from now, your, your forecast could come true. Well, God willing. Eric Topol, thank you very much. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Baraldi. Our holiday schedule will be a little bit different than typical. We'll be coming at you once a week on Wednesdays. Happy holidays, and we will see you soon. 